Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Innkeeper's Guest Book Podcast. I am the illustrious Innkeeper, Freddie. Thank you for joining us. Here's the rundown. Union Inn, 1112, 1114 3rd Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C. Steps to Noma Gallaudet Metro Station. Nice little brisk walk to Union Station. Nice leisurely jog to Capitol and Capitol Hill, where all the fun, power, smiling faces, people stuff happens. Thomas, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm all feeling right. uh, I'm feeling rested and fed, so... All right, and, and and for those of y'all familiar with uh, the accents to emanate from the United Kingdom, he's Irish. Yeah, don't don't say England. <laughs> well, I said United Kingdom. No, I know. I'm kidding. How's it going, man? Very good. Yeah, just happy to be in uh, DC for um, Thanksgiving and experience uh, an East Coast Thanksgiving. Yes, yes. and we definitely uh, gave that fireplace some work, man. For real. We we needed to. It was cold. It was very cold, and now it's raining outside. <laughs> So, so it's just like home. You now live in LA? Yeah, I live in Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. How long have you been there? About two years. You came straight from Ireland there? Or? No, I, I lived in London for two and a half years and uh, just on a kind of a whim ended up here um, through my career, which is in directing films and TV commercials. I uh, didn't really intend to move and uh, opportunity presented itself and uh, in the space of about a month and a half, all of a sudden I found myself living in sunny California. Oh, wow. So what was that opportunity? Are you at liberty to discuss? Yeah, I mean, what really happened was I just came over um, on a casual thing and, uh, you know, just was um, uh, for a friend's birthday and uh, through someone I met then when I went home to London, uh, they reached out and said, would I be interested in signing with them, their company? to direct TV commercials over here that they would represent me uh, for the United States. And I said, yeah, and we talked and we you know, went back and forth. And I, I signed with, with that company and uh, pitched on my first job. Um, and um, we won it. I was the sort of underdog against much, much bigger directors, but we won it and I, I, I had, I was in, I basically just got my visa to, to work here. And I just decided at that point to, to move and live because I'd always it was my dream since I was a child to live in America I mean I'm yeah I'm massively into like American pop culture I grew up I kind of was a little bit isolated as a kid because I moved from London to Dublin and had an accent and at the time there were some problems and social problems between England and Ireland which are no longer there now um but um so I was a little bit isolated when I first moved and so I just like a classic kind of um, you know, a kid who jumped into my imagination, uh, watched a lot of movies, read a lot of books, and sort of like my my experience growing up is kind of funny because when I think back to my childhood, I don't necessarily think fully about growing up in Ireland as a kid. I I almost think of you know um, Back to the Future and Friday the Thirteenth and these movies. Uh, my memories are somewhat mixed with with that. You know, so it's um, so I always had like a a nostalgia when I think back to my childhood. I very much think back to '80s America. Wow. Okay. So, when was the first thing that you ever did, whether professionally or not, uh, that related to your ultimately wanting to be a film director? Like, what was the first thing you directed? Um. Well, it's fun. I think the first time I ever really started to think about it was. You know, I, I love movies growing up, but I didn't necessarily see myself being in movies. I originally wanted to be an archaeologist when I was kind of 12, 13, and then I started to move towards astrophysics because I love space. I mean, you can kind of see my influences here because I, I love fantasy and sci-fi. 
so um you know i think the archaeology was somewhat linked to that and the and this and the astrophysics was linked to the science fiction and um I, th- I I used to write short stories, um, mainly main well, a bit of bit of fantasy, a bit of sci-fi, but mainly mainly sci-fi, I would say. And so um, I was kind of like a really I have about fifteen hundred books at home, so I was a really big reader of of um, both. But you know, I read a lot of short stories of Philip K. Dick and you know Robert Heinlein and all these like you know Isaac Asimov, these great great writers. And so I used to write my own little short stories and things. I never quite got around to writing a novel. I I think I started about three four pages into about ten different ones and never got past that. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I and so I think I hit a certain point when I was around seventeen or so when I said to myself, well maybe I'll write a no- you know, novel and it'll get adapted to a film. And then I said, I think, well, maybe I'll write a film. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll direct a film. And it sort of was this progression of of ambition and idea. Um, and I think that was around 2000. And I, I remember seeing Gladiator in the cinema and coming out and being flawed. I mean, I just, you know, I was like, oh my God, that's you know there was something inherently cinematic about it and it, it's funny i think there's a very much a through line now into what i love i mean i grew up watching you know obviously spielberg but james cameron ridley scott um you know the i'm trying to think who else now but th- those kind of filmmakers were huge influences on me and so um i think my sort of style as a director is very cinematic and it's very much influenced by those those directors and um so i i kind of saw that film was blown away and then what really made me i did a, a short 10-week course in filmmaking because i i didn't finish high school um i had a, i had a, i got ill during my exams and um and you're not allowed to repeat them you have to you have to basically go back to school for a year oh, man. um so i kind of ended up not not um passing and in 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 a fit of anger, threw my results into the fireplace, and I have no idea to this day what I got, but I know I failed because I didn't sit enough of them. So um, I went and did this eight week course, ten week course, and um, really enjoyed it, but had no idea where to go from there, and sort of didn't do much. And I made a short film with some friends, played around. Ironically, two of the actors in it have gone on to be very successful. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um, one of them was in a whole host of big things in the uk he was actually in guardians of the galaxy the small role um and he's done a few netflix tv series and stuff like that and then the other guy um has done quite well in ireland he stayed in ireland and he's in game of thrones he has a small role a recurring role of multiple seasons um as one of the um the, the night's watch and so um it was interesting because i think when i work with them they're very new at it and so that was kind of gratifying to see everyone grow um together but th- this was literally something i did with my friends which i never i kind of have buried in a in, a, in an excel or somewhere <laughs> what was the name of the short film it was called perfect strangers and i literally don't know if i even have a copy anywhere it was it was um <laughs> it was something i kind of just was figuring out myself and it's funny because when i think back on it there's definitely some influences that have kept through to today but i think i guess when i made it i was like 20 years old and didn't have a clue what i was doing and was literally making it with my friends and i think um how long was it it was 10 minutes i think um and it was pretty much like strangers on a train meets um god i don't know like notorious or something it was very much like a hitchcock type thing um what did you shoot it on we shot it on a um i think we shot it on a canon xl1 which at the time was considered the sort of 
preeminent digital camera. I mean, this was mini DV days. It was just when digital cameras were starting to come in. Um, and so uh, I did that and then I did nothing for the next few years. My dad passed away around that time. So it was, it was kind of a little bit of a hard time. And My condolences. Oh, thank you. Um, no, it's... Um, I think it was, you know, it was very much a time of me fig- trying to figure out my life and myself. And what's been really interesting for me, uh, not to jump ahead too much, but I think it's the last, I guess, what, that's, you know, 14 years or so has been sort of like a um, a process of figuring out who I am. And it's kind of interesting because through my career and my work, I've sort of, I never really knew who I was as a filmmaker. You know, some directors jump straight in like Wes Anderson and they instantly have a style that's recognizable from day one and that's definitely not me it's i think i've grown very much bit by bit by bit my, you know the same thing in my career i did you know like a two thousand dollar job then a four thousand then a six then a twelve and a, and it's very much been an exponential growth and you know i've done a few million dollar ads over the last year or so and and that's been a build up to that point so I think for me, even in my style, like I've done almost every genre you can imagine. And I think that's partially me, me just trying to figure out what I want to do. And I think there's a bit of a pressure nowadays in life and in everything to sort of, you know, be be this sort of fully formed person. And I don't think that's a good thing or a healthy thing or a realistic thing. I think it puts undue pressure on you because I think it, part of, you know, we, we like to have this sort of attitude that um, that, you know, you need to figure out who you want to be and what you are by the time you're 20 and that's you know now looking back I'm I'm like I still feel like a kid you know and I think that's I think that's um a crazy sort of expectation to put on yourself or to put on someone but um I think for me that there was a period of about four years where I didn't quite know where I was what I wanted to do and it was very much about, you know, feeling around and trying to figure out, like, you know, how, how to get there, I guess. I kind of had to reinvent the wheel a little bit. Um, and so this is with respect to finding yourself as a person well, rather than finding yourself as a film director. Well, I mean, to me, they're, they're hand in they're hand. hand, in hand. Okay, I mean, it's I can't separate them at all because I think, you know, art is reflected or you reflect in your art or you should. And, you know, I don't mean that in a sort of... Um, stuck up way. I mean, you know, art is kind of anything that has cultural significance or, you know, that represents um, a part of yourself in it. Um, and so I think, you know, even if you're doing something that's very commercial, it is still somewhat of an art form. And I think for me, um, it was very much a, a sort of accepting, um, coming to terms with who I am, thinking, like looking inward. That wasn't, you know, it's not always the easiest thing. And and I know that sounds kind of heavy, but, you know, I, I actually want to make quite commercial movies. Um, and my work, you know, is is definitely very um, emotionally drawn. Um, I'm not sort of like an obscure uh, European art house type person. I, I love Hollywood movies, but I love ones that have sort of a, a thematic um, resonance that are about something. I think it's really, really important that... Um, that sort of story um, teaches you something. Um, And I think for me, it was sort of trying to figure out what the stories were I wanted to tell. And initially, I, you know, my, I think that's something I'm really realizing in the last few years. I mean, my, my first sort of success, if you want to call it that, was I made a short film called The Confession. And we shot it in the end of 2007, uh, in December, in two days, in the church in central Dublin, where St. Valentine's bones are, 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 um, uh, I've forgotten that word now. And not in, like 
not exhumed, but yeah, ex uh, exhumed. I guess you could okay, say. Yeah. yeah, they're just sitting in a kind of a, a, a sort of um, a, a chest or whatever you want to call it, like the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. <laughs> and um, yeah, we we shot in this church and we shot for two days. The priest was very kind, allowed us to do that, and um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I had a semi-professional crew. I had you know some very junior people who who worked in the industry. I had a cameraman. Um, a makeup artist um, everyone's gone on I think to do quite well actually but um, at the time you know I really did I, I just had a sense of well this is what I want to do and everyone was trying to dissuade me everyone was saying you know you need to go out and make something longer and about something and this really was just a three minute joke um, it literally was it's an old famous Irish Scottish joke that I took and I kind of added um, a punchline onto the end and I remember hearing Stephen King once say that um you know a piece of original work is basically or a moment of inspiration where you sort of see you 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 kind of take a and b put it together and it becomes c and i think that was what it was for me that i i got emailed this joke by a friend who's scottish and and then i i came across um a tv commercial that had this sort of really funny punchline and i sort of like took the end of that punchline and attached it to the joke because the joke was a little bit sort of anticlimactic and this just gave it that bang at the end um and so i i did that film and i um i actually we had a nightmare there was um we were filming in a confession box set one of the days in a warehouse and there was like a mini hurricane hit ireland and that never happens ever yeah it's that far north wow <laughs> well i mean it was just it was sort of like a, a storm basically okay. but but um, it, it hit and the old rickety warehouse was shaking and banging and so you couldn't really hear the dialogue um, being spoken properly. So we just did like 45 takes. Wow. Yeah, of each one. I mean, it's a three-minute film, but I had to sort of stand there and go, okay, well, did I get enough of this line or that line? And so um, we did it like that, and then I edited it myself. Again, didn't really know what I was doing, um, using basic sort of software. We shot the film for about 1,400 euro, which is about $2,000, I guess. Um, probably about two and a half thousand in today's money mm -hmm. with inflation and stuff because this was ten just over ten years ago actually I think it's almost eleven years wow. um but um so what happened was um uh, i I just had to go through it and find little snippets that that there was no i think you know when I cut it all together, there was probably four or five takes that I could use of the whole thing. Um, bits and pieces between each one and then I would just pick the best performance from those four or five and you had stitched together yeah and stitched it together and just like you know um, chiseled away at it bit by bit by bit and then stuck it together and um, you know did a I, I met a guy who did a bit of sound mixing and stuff got him to do it and um, sent it off to uh, I, I'd come across a couple of filmmakers that I was looking at online that were very successful and I cross-referenced their film festival lists and then just basically whatever I saw the two of them had sent it figured oh, okay well these are guys these guys are pretty big so um, I guess they'd only send it to decent festivals so I used that cross-reference and then added things like Cannes and Berlin and you know all the big festivals and Sundance and um, sent it to about 100 festivals which was really expensive I think it cost about $2,000 wow it cost more than the movie yeah ironically I mean that I don't know about now because I haven't been in that world as much recently but it definitely used to be very expensive to submit to festivals because a lot of festivals charge you between twenty five and fifty dollars to submit. That's kind of how they how they operate. How they that's how they get their running costs from. 
And do you have to send them an actual reel or something, or do you have to do you just send them a well, now, Dropbox? Now, now you just send them um, a digital VOD kind of thing, but a link. But back then, you used to have to send a DVD, and then if you got submit, if you got accepted, you would you would send them what's called a DigiBeater, and a DigiBeater. I don't know how older viewers or listeners are, but um, was basically it's a big VHS type, and back in the early eighties, there was a war between. Um, VHS and Digibeater and VHS won and so Digibeater got kind of relegated to being a professional tool because Digibeater was actually a lot better quality than VHS which was pretty bad but it, v- VHS was cheap and so that's why it kind of won the war back in the yeah, 80s it sounds like Edison um, versus Tesla it, it kind of was it was like Coca-Cola versus Pepsi you know yeah. <laughs> one of those things so yeah. so basically um, I sent it to off to these festivals and I remember I was helping on a friend's film. I was just working on it, and I asked the cameraman um, what was the best festival he'd ever played, and he said Palm Springs, without a, without a shadow of a doubt. And I, I went home that night, and I got an email in my inbox, and it was from Palm Springs Film Festival telling me I just got in and I was going right. to have my world premiere. All right. And I was blown this, away. This for the confession, right? Yeah, this for the confession. And, and, and the next day I got into Rhode Island Film Festival. They're both sort of top tier festivals or maybe, you know, they're they're top 50 in the world anyway, that's for sure. So, um, and then all of a sudden it was just like a flood. I mean, I, I got into like another one, another one, another one. And, and overall I played about 55 festivals. Wow. And this yeah. is over the course of how long? About a year and a half. Okay. Um, but, th- you know, I pl- probably played about 35 in the first year, 35, 40. So, um, you know, I, I ended up playing Tribeca. Um, a, a whole, I got into to Sundance and the pre-selection. And then when they found that I played so many festivals, they ended up saying that they had to accept a different film. So that was a shame, but... But it did incredibly well. I got it into cinemas in Ireland in front of a feature film. I got bought by every major station pretty much in, in each country in the world. Wow. You know. So how, how long was the movie? Uh, it was only 3 minutes 40 seconds. I can remember specifically. Um, and that's actually... I th- I th- I'm not sure if it's on my website actually. I, I must check. But it's it's old now. So it's that kind of scary thing of showing people the world, your first thing you've ever done. But, um, it did well. Um, how many people... When you were filming that, how many people would you say that you hired across that whole process? I, th- I think only about 10. It was very, very guerrilla. And we sort of, you know, I, it was one of those things where I, I didn't know what I was doing. And that was beneficial because at the same time, I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I wasn't scared of the mountain I was climbing because yeah. I didn't know how big it was. Exactly. And um, so you said you shot for two days. Yeah, we mm-hmm. shot for one day in the church itself, mm-hmm. and then one day on a set. Okay, and then how long did the post production time take? I think about two months because I cut it myself and I showed it to some friends and I would recut it. And you know, again, I didn't really know what I was doing, so it was sort of like it was very much just a process of you know you um you learn it as you're doing it. Okay. Um, and so in the time since, uh, have you done any other short films? Yeah, I actually did another four over the next um, f- three and a half years. Okay. Um, and I, I, they all did really well. Um, I got into about 150 festivals between all four films. Um, played, you know, um, Newport Beach, Aspen, you know, Tribeca four times, Newport Beach four times. Um, played some big festivals in Europe, in the UK, in Ireland, Um and just had a kind of a run um, and truth be told I didn't really have a solid feature film project ready to go because 
I think for me it was very much like a self exploration. You know, a lot of the other filmmakers had gone to film school or they'd they very much had a sort of a plan of some sort. I really didn't. I was just sort of feeling around in the dark. And that was hard at the time. I think, you know, had I looked forward and known how long and tough the journey would be, I don't know if I would have done it. But I think thankfully I I was blind to that and I think it was one of those things where um you know I've enjoyed the journey thoroughly and there's been incredible moments I'll never forget the first time I got into Tribeca the the feeling of elation and joy and just taking a moment to think this will never happen again as in you know I will never experience this for the first time for the first time again yeah I I guess it's you know I haven't had a kid yet but it's like having a kid or one of those things you know it's and I think it just for me there was this moment where I said to myself you know what just literally bask in this for just even for 30 seconds so I um I just sat back and and sort of you know f- had that feeling wash over me and um and then I my last film I made was the science fiction um horror which was sort of in the vein of Moon or the Thing or you know some of the very heavy influences I have. What was the name of that one? That was called Falling Apart. Okay, and it was a short one. You said. Yeah, that was a five minute film. I think it's five minutes without credits, and it's um. Basically, we made that for fifteen hundred. Um, I believe fifteen hundred pound, and I made it in the UK. And the situation with that was that me and a, me and a friend wanted to enter. Me and my writing partner, actually, who's been involved in all my films since the confession, TJ Huntofter. He's Danish, but has an American accent uh, <laughs> from his high school. Um, but um, basically, we did this film, and um, it was for a competition called the London Sci-Fi Forty Eight Hour film competition and you have 48 hours to make a film from inception to finishing so you literally go in with a blank sheet of paper on a saturday morning at 9 a.m and you come out monday morning with a finished a fully finished five minute film so how do they know if you didn't come with your uh uh, a script or an idea ahead of time and what they do is they give you a series of things so they give you a prop they give you a title they give you a line of dialogue and and you've got to come up with that and they're pretty um they're pretty forceful if they think you didn't do it genuinely. Like there was one film that was really impressive because they released the films at the end and they had a really big actor and everything and they disqualified it because they felt that it wasn't, it was very loosely connected to the thing. So they kind of knew that someone, whoever did it, he clearly had um, prepared for it by having a script and cast and everything ready. So um, with us, we had a few different ideas, but they were just ideas, and they were they were kind of a broad range of things. So and then i I took to I talked to a load of cast, um, various people I knew, friends of friends, and had everyone on kind of standby and said, I don't know if I'm going to use you or not, but and then we just looked into a few different locations, and when we when we went in and we got our stuff in the morning, we realized one particular idea would work. Um, but I needed sort of like a bomb shelter type place. And so there was, um, and this competition is very prestigious, by the way. It's kind of the preeminent 48-hour film competition in the world. It um, it it kind of got its notoriety because in 2008, I believe it was 2008, um, uh, Gareth Evans, I think it is, the guy who directed um, Star Wars Rogue One and Godzilla, he did a short film um, called Factory Farm, which won the competition. And off the back of that, he then got funding off Vertigo Films, which is a big UK company, to go and make Monsters, which was this indie film he made for half a million with Scoop McNary and his wife. I can't remember her name. And they basically shot it in Central America and Texas. And that film blew up into this huge 
phenomenon at the time it was in tons of festivals it got into u.s cinemas and all this kind of stuff and off the back of that he got godzilla and then star wars so everyone straight after that everyone all of a sudden wanted to see who was the next gareth evans um and so um he he just brought a lot of you know um visibility to the festival and with the visibility came sort of you know in my competition there was there was the year i did it there was six judges I can't remember four of them in total honesty. They were people like the head editor of Iron Nine, but but two particular people was Guillermo del Toro okay. and it's Ben. A, uh, hold on, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro. I know he did. Is that Shape of Water? Yes, okay. he's the director. He won yeah, Best Director at the Oscars. Um, and he um he's a huge you know I'm a huge fan of his, and um I have been for you know since his started his career. And he did Pan's Labyrinth and, you know, Hellboy and all those movies. And so um, there was him and there was Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Doctor Strange. Yes, Doctor Strange. And he was in Star Trek 2 and everything like that, Into yes, Darkness. Yes. So, um, you know, it was, it was very prestigious to be able to know that they're going to look at my work if I get to a certain level. Uh, because they have a sort of first round disqualification, or not disqualification, but they, they have an internal panel that picked the best 20. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to those guys and they view them. There was 300 and... 50 films there was like 1200 participants i think like something you know a certain amount don't make it they end up dropping out in the midst of the shoot because they realize they can't yeah, pull it off around, yeah but um so um we did it and we got to the top 20 and oh, right. and then we came second congratulations um, man thank you yeah no it was it was it was an amazing experience and guillermo del toro sent an email to me through the founder of the festival i didn't unfortunately get his private email but <laughs> But um, and he was very, very complimentary, and I was told that I would have won any for the idea wasn't original enough, uh, which was which was very fair because I basically cobbled together with TJ we cobbled together um, you know bits and pieces of our favorite sci-fi horror films, mm-hmm. so um, or thrillers as well. So that that was kind of that, and at that point I was broke, and I was, you know, um, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't. I'd kind of hit a bit of a wall in my career. I was sort of struggling to figure out, um you know how to move forward um i didn't quite have a f- I, I had i'd got rejected a number of times for funding from the irish film board for feature film projects and i just was sort of stumped and um i guess that i was coming to a point in my life where there was there was a lot of change uh i was married that marriage was coming to an end um and i i guess i was kind of feeling like ireland had i'd outgrown it a little bit not not in a pretentious way I don't say that but just I had bigger ambitions and I kind of you know I've always wanted to live in America and but the first step I think was to go to England but at, before even that happened I, I just felt I, I was coming to this kind of crossroads in my life so between film festivals and everything were you finding you were spending more time outside of Ireland than you were inside of Ireland um, not quite but I definitely was traveling and I guess that opens your perspective and, yeah. and stuff as well and I think um I think I, you know, I got to this point where I was really, a lot of it was, on honesty, I was really broke. I'd put, I'd had a bit of inheritance money when my father passed away. That was gone now. I uh, I was on social welfare um, to help me out. That was kind of becoming unsustainable. And so I talked to a friend of mine, a really amazing cameraman called Rory O'Brien, who shoots a lot of big, um, you know, TV series in the UK, shot humans and a variety of other things. And 
he said to me, if I was you, I'd get into advertising. It's it's a good way to sort of practice your skills and make some money and, you know, see who you can do that. I, I didn't realize how hard that was going to be. Uh, it's a very tough industry these days. It used to be a lot easier and there used to be a lot of money in it. It's, it's definitely... In terms of breaking in or in terms of the end product um, is more polished than what it used to be? No, it just breaking in is hard. I mean, I think the, the product is probably more polished to a degree, although clients have more sway nowadays which is not or in my opinion is not the best thing because unfortunately you know i think clients tend to be a little bit more insecure about audiences understanding um you know if you do something a little more artistic um they they're they're afraid that it's not going to be misunderstood or something like that especially or the inside the u.s well yeah i guess so i mean i th- i think it's one of those things in general it's become something i think advertising was more brave in the 90s uh, probably in the early 2000s as well because there was less people doing it and therefore they could they could be a little more forceful and therefore clients would trust them more and I think there's more variety and more options now so you know sometimes if you don't want to do what someone wants they'll just go somewhere else um, but that I think applies to a lot of things I think that applies to movies somewhat as well there's less movies getting made the movies have bigger budgets that are being made by studios and therefore there's less um, opportunity to make riskier things and you know, I think f- people who finance things are a little bit more risk adverse uh, because the competition is there. I mean, there's no DVD market now. That used to be a huge source of income mm-hmm. and revenue for companies. So, about that. so yeah, I basically started doing music videos and some online content pieces and um, did that for a few years. And then I, I got signed by a really good company in Ireland called H2 Films that were one of the big companies. And H2? H2, yeah, like, um, like water without the O. Okay, <laughs> um, and um, they kind of took me under under their wings. Uh, Keith and and Jack were my sort of mentors there, and uh, just kind of found my feet somewhat. I got mentored. I did a commercial for Jaguar, another for Land Rover, and that was my first kind of really big stuff that I did. And off the back of that, I moved to London, and um, I worked with a company there called Bullion Productions, and they were a small but growing company, and did some stuff with them and. Um, I guess just continue to grow and do do some of my own stuff not films but just did a few passion content pieces I did a job for Middleton Whiskey that's a luxury brand owned by Jemison very small budget but they gave us a huge amount of creative freedom and so um, that I think that combined with, with other stuff I'd done I had a pretty decent start to a showreel yeah. and um, I guess just to jump forward that was sort of when I found I, I found myself at a turning point i was with a company in london i left that other company um was was a little bit lost again a bit like you know before i moved to london really um I'd, i reached a crossroads i was in london two and a half years i kind of felt like it wasn't quite my place in the long run although i love going back um it wasn't quite i think where i where i was meant to be um and so i think i'd always been afraid to take that push that jump to to um to Los Angeles to America and you know in this moment of sort of um, being lost this opportunity to come over for a holiday presented itself and everything just came out of that really I th- and, and I think it's one of those things um, every time in my life where I have reached one of these points I've just sort of let the waves carry me and I think there's a great life lesson which I'm starting to be able to appreciate and learn and sort of let continue in my life and so um, so I did that and then I was with a company I did a, f- a number of jobs it's been a very successful you know first year and a half in America and then a few months back I think me and the company I was with decided to part ways 
since then I've um I've now gone on to a few other things. I I am now um a creative consultant in a video game company um that's doing sort of next generation video games involving sort of cinematic media. So it's like VR. They do a bit of VR, a bit of AR. They do Alexa video games, so that's audio, but very cinematic story-driven games with sort of branching narratives and interactive. So that's very much like they need a director who can direct those things. So yeah, I, 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 I creative consult and then direct the media there. And then I'm I'm in the midst of um, working with a, a producer called Lucas Foster who he produced Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Crimson Tide and all these blockbusters. And he's an incredibly nice guy. And we're developing a, a sci-fi kind of thriller in the vein of sort of children of men district nine um sort of like um bit of handmaid's tale thrown in um and um we're doing actually a proof of concept for that early next year right and which we'll bring around to the studios and stuff and so um and then i'm in talks with a number of uh, big commercials companies about signing with with one of them to do stuff i just signed back with a company in london called johnny foreigner Mm -hmm. and so i'll be doing commercials there and in europe and um just came back from this summer doing a commercial in Ireland uh, with H2 again so that was nice to get back and uh, yeah it's been it's been really busy things have ramped up cool so one last question before we get to lightning round the sure. questions um, did you find that your background in making short films translated well to the commercial and video format just typically under five minutes well definitely commercials like what 30 seconds but I mean specifically for vid- music videos that probably are rarely more than five minutes i would say do you find mm. did you find that it was a good transition there like it helped you out gave, gave you a leg up against um other directors that may have not come from that or done more feature films and then was making videos i think it depends i mean i think there's room for everyone you know like there's certain directors that are very graphic oriented come from graphic design backgrounds very copy oriented meaning they come from agencies you get a lot of music video guys that make very sort of musicy poppy things for me i come from cinema i would say you know between me and a feature film director there's no real difference because i came from a story and a narrative background and that's what i want to do and the ads i really am good at and what i want to really make they're narrative emotional narrative pieces um so i think that's what i'm good i'm i'm good at telling a story and evoking emotion in the audience uh, I'm not necessarily as good at certain other things. Got you. So all of your short, st- all of your short films, all of your TV commercials and music mm. videos are on your website, correct? Uh, n- a chunk of them are not, okay. not everything, but yeah, they're on my website. Okay, good. All right, seven questions. Lightning round. One book to add to the library. This is a tough one, but because uh, I just got the list, I haven't had a time to think about it. But I mean, um, I would say um, I'll give a sci-fi and a fantasy one. I think Lord of the Rings is a classic. I, I you know, read it growing up, and I think it's amazing. Actually, I'll throw another one in there. I think Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea and the Earthsea tri- uh, Quartet is amazing. Um, if I had to give a sci-fi one, I might say Ender's Game, which was an incredible... Great, great, great book. Yeah, the book's incredible, and I think, uh, God, there's so many. Philip K. Dick's stuff is amazing. I could read it all day. Um, Were you an Ender guy or a Bean guy? Ooh, I think that's a tough one. I I originally was Ender. I might have swayed Bean. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so of those three, which one would you put the star by for people to check out? I think um, one thing I found kind of surprising, actually, I was talking to my girlfriend about, is that um, a lot of women don't know who Ursula Le Guin is um maybe I'm totally wrong there but you know woman I know I've talked about her and she's regarded as one of the greatest um uh writers American writers of the 20th century and uh, has won a 
God knows how many was Booker Prize and all these things. So I think um, her Etsy quartet and her other science fiction things like The Left Hand of Darkness, they're incredible books because they're also, um, I guess they're they're life lessons and they're, they're sort of about things, you know, it's a woman's perspective. Um, so it's slightly different, you know, because I think traditionally fantasy and sci-fi have been very male dominated. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think um, there, there are definitely books that should be checked out. Um, you said a wizard of Earthsea? No, Earth. See, sorry, it's my accent. Oh, E A O T H. You know. Oh, okay. There you go. There it is. <laughs> a wizard of Earthsea. Yeah. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. All so, right. so we'll put a star by that one. Yeah. All right. Podcast. Which one? Um, I, I, I have to, tr- um, criminally say I haven't listened to many. Um, this one. <laughs> All right. Uh, Keeper's <laughs> guestbook. Great um, answer. I, I, for film people, there is a great one. Um. I think it was Screenplay Magazine or something where they would interview uh, writers of scripts and they would come on and talk in front of an audience. And I've forgotten the name of it now, but that was a great podcast as well. It was done by Screenplay Magazine? I think it was Screenplay Magazine, yeah. Okay. I yeah. haven't listened to one in a while, which is um, I really need to get back into my podcasting. <laughs> no worries. We, you can you can catch up with the Innkeeper's Guestbook. It'll ramp you back. I, I will. I will it's do a good it. primer to all the rest of the podcasts <laughs> that are out there in the world. All right, uh, something that you didn't know that you needed until you got it. Question number three. Hmm. I think um, to be to be really pretentious, I would I would sort of say um, mindfulness and or or peace of mind. And I th- and I think what I mean by that is you know I'm I'm a little bit ADHD and my mind wanders and I'm kind of you know always in my head. And I think just in the last year I've really learned to sort of journal and and meditate and i know that sounds very californian of me but but i think it's actually really important to sort of um look inwards because you'll never find everyone feels a little empty i feel like in this day and age and we're always sort of looking outside ourselves for the answers and i'm very much on that journey of self-exploration but i think it's that and that very much ties in with my work and the journey i said i've gone on and will go on to the rest of you know to the end of my time um but i think um i think just sort of i read a lot now read a lot of books like stoicism or just you know self-help stuff and um so, so do you journal daily i i mean to i sometimes forget but I, it's incredible i hadn't written at all in i think like f- 20 years and i started doing it early this year and it, i found it incredibly you know i'd sit down with a blank page and be like what the hell am i doing and then 20 30 minutes later i'd have four pages of scribble just literally stream of conscious of how i feel and every time i ever do it i just feel so much better at the end it's like sort of it's like sort of getting getting all that sort of a release yeah getting all the anxiety or 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 negativity or whatever it is just out and you just always feel more positive afterwards yeah you're right about that um so do you find that when you do journal it's typically during a certain time of day i keep meaning to do it in the morning because i think that's by far the best time to do it and i often don't do it till late at night because i i end up letting other things get in the way but i'm trying to become a little bit more scheduled in my life it's hilarious uh, i was watching the quincy documentary and he said um in the, in the documentary he says that uh nighttime is when all the muses come out yeah i mean i i was a big nighttime person for a long time i think there's something with the atmosphere of night that i've always resonated with me but i'm as i get older i'm 36 now and as i get older i'm definitely gravitating towards more early starts i'm not going out as much maybe it's it's funny how you change you kind of look at your parents and roll your eyes and then you become them you become them. 
All right, number four, bucket list place to travel. This is a place in the world that you have been that you recommend mm-hmm. the listeners add to their bucket list. You know, it's I feel like I'm tragically have not traveled to near as many places as I would like. Um, I, I would say that I really haven't been, but when I go to somewhere like Nepal, which I think is incredible, or Mongolia, okay. the places I have been, um, I think uh, Ljubljana in um, Slovenia is incredible. You have Lake Bled, which um, is this iconic monastery on a, on a hill in an island which um everybody has probably seen lake bled um because it's this iconic image that's long, it's the kind of thing that's like on your um windows desktop background um but um but yeah that's that's definitely a place to go um you know i think there's a whole other other lot of places i was south africa's amazing um I, I'm endeavoring to sort of uh, travel a bit more uh, these days. So, Nah, I blame I think we all do. So for those listening at home that may not know how to spell this, because I didn't know, first off, it's the capital of Slovenia, and it's spelled L-J-U-B-L-J-A-N-A, Ljubljana. It's a, it's a very pretty, beautiful, yeah, quaint... The picture they have right here is really nice. Yeah, it's a little bit Disney almost, like cobblestone streets and castles and stuff. All right, that's great. That's... That is great. I never would have thought about this place. So I, I, I shot a, my Jagger TV commercial there. That's how I, <laughs> that's how I know it. No doubt, no doubt. Um, all right, number five, uh, fifty mile detour restaurant. This is a restaurant that if you happen to be within fifty miles of it, it makes sense to detour off of your intended path of travel just to eat there. Hmm. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of a specific restaurant. Um, I there's I mean if if you're in Ireland and you're anywhere near Kinsale there's a couple of Michelin star restaurants that I can't remember their names but they're amazing. How I'll, do you spell that? Um, the Kin, city Kinsale is it's a small town in the south east of Ireland um and it's called K I N S A L E. K I N S A L E. Yes. It's it's a uh, very beautiful. All right. Um, and I think if I was to um. God, I think if I was to, if I was to talk about a specific restaurant, it, I I will. I'm just trying to have a look. Finn's now. Table Bastion. I think maybe Bastion was the one. Okay. Um, I had, if I was to pick a place um in LA, I would say the Little Door, um, okay. which is a romantic. Uh, it was voted, I think, one of the most romantic restaurants in the world, I believe. But I brought my girlfriend there on one of our first dates, and it is incredibly romantic. Okay. Um, and it is in, I believe, West Hollywood. Um. And uh, it's a little bit pricey, but not too much so. It's worth it for the for the woman you love. There you go. All right, number six, uh, number one skill. This is uh, your number one honed craft. Um, you know it's funny because I think I think often there is. I guess everyone has an, an inherent talent. Um, but I do I do sort of I'm a fan of Conor McGregor. Um, and I and I do one of the things I kind of believe is that you know anyone can can be the best at what they do if they try hard enough. But I think if I was to sort of, if I had to pick a handcraft thing, um, or sorry, a, a skill, ooh, I think um, maybe just listening to people. Um, I, I think, you know, I think we don't listen enough. I'm guilty of it a lot of the time. But I think um, when you listen to people, you learn a lot, not just about them, but about yourself. Two ears, one mouth. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and your number one talent. This is something that you didn't have to work at. Um, I think, I think number one talent maybe is is spotting talent in other people or seeing the potential of other people. Um, I think that's really important because I think 
we live in a world that is becoming more and more divisive and I think that um, you know I think the most important thing in this world is helping others and I think when you help others you help yourself and I think it's you know there's almost like an attitude of I was talking to some friends of mine earlier on today and I was just saying that um, there's a little bit of an attitude nowadays in the West to sort of be the best and the problem I have with being the best is if you tell your kids you got to be the best then you're almost saying well you got to be better than everyone else and if you say that you're you're sort of like putting them down at at, at the sort of um at the behest of your own kids but and, and and likewise you know if if your children or your whatever are not the best then they see themselves as inferior or less than someone else and i think it's i think that is a very very murky dangerous thing to do and i think that's why we have a lot of problems in the world right now and i think it's not that I'm not saying you shouldn't aspire to be great. I want to be the biggest director in the world. But I think it's about being the best version of yourself as opposed to being the best version of everything, which I don't believe really exists. You know, I think that's a false sort of promise that just leads to misery, really, because I think there's no such thing. Um, it's like being perfect. It doesn't exist. And I think um, you'll never really find sort of satisfaction if you try that. Okay. Great place to end it. All right. Social media, website, anything you want to plug? Um, you can, yeah, you can plug my, my Instagram. Okay, what's that? <laughs> it is um, Thomas Heffron, my name. Mm-hmm. Um, and Instagram, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it's Instagram.com slash Thomas Heffron, but it might not be. It might be. I think if you Google Thomas Heffron mm-hmm. Instagram, I, I think it will come up. Okay, but it is your name. Your yeah, handle. no, no, it's my, yeah, it's, yeah. it's my name. So if they name, just yeah. go down to Instagram and type in Thomas yeah. Heffron with no space, they, the, they will, they will find it. And that's H E F F E R O N. Yes, it is. Uh, yes, Thomas, thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. And we gotta do a part two because I know we rushed through kind of the back end of it, man. Yeah, but we gotta do a part two. I will. Time. I would love to. All right, sounds good. Uh thank you, guests, listeners, for joining us, and we will see you next week. <laughs>